Was he the one-armed boxer? He wasn't the one-armed boxer. He was just a bum. I don't care who he was. I intend to kill every one-armed man that I come across here. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 39, which is Cole's choice. What did you select this time? Well, we are celebrating our anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to you. And following the traditional pattern, you know that first anniversary is paper, second anniversary is cotton, and third anniversary is awesome kung fu. You better believe it, and I am alerting Hallmark. So, to celebrate, for you I got Master of the Flying Guillotine from 1976, also pronounced guillotine by everyone in the movie. Incorrectly. Which we will not be indulging in during this podcast, correct? So you say. Oh, no. This was directed by, written by, and stars Jimmy Wang Yu, and also stars Kang Chin, Lao Kar Wing, and Fei Lung. And a lot of other familiar faces that you will see pop up in the kung fu movies of the mid to late 70s over and over again. It is the story of a blind imperial assassin who sets out to avenge the deaths of his students who were killed by the one-armed boxer. This assassin goes about this task by killing every single one-armed man in the near vicinity. He infiltrates a tournament and with the help of his minions he tracks down the one-armed boxer forcing a final showdown. It is an all-time classic of the genre, and it begins with one of the all-time classic kung fu opening sequences ever. It's one of my favorites, obviously, since I chose it for this. I'll probably be saying this a number of times, but it must be seen to be believed. It's one thing to describe it and another to watch it unfold. Well, the opening certainly sets the tone for the whole thing. It begins in a smoky, craggy, mountainous hellscape where there is nothing but a thatched roof hut, where we find our blind master. He's going about his morning ritual, it seems, when he supernaturally snatches a messenger pigeon out of the air. It's pretty awesome. I'll probably be saying that a few more times, too. And the news that is delivered is that two of his students, his protégés, have been killed by a one-armed boxer. He reacts pretty badly to this. (laughs) This is not good news. And by badly, I mean he jumps through the roof of his house practices a little bit with his flying guillotine, chops off numerous fake heads, and then firebombs his own hut. I would say rewind this part and then play it again just so you can get the full effect of what has happened. All to a throbbing, insistent, ominous krautrock beat. It's so neat. It's so odd to hear that. Juxtaposed with that. Yeah, it's of course the right time that the film is being made, but not the time that the film is set in. Right. But there is a certain segment of the kung fu film audience that this was perfect for, both when it was new and ever since then. There are those of us, for example, me, having worked in a record store for years and years and years and loving all this genre film stuff, and then all of a sudden you hear Noi or Kraftwerk or Tangerine Dream pop up. It doubles the awesomeness. It manages to work perfectly throughout, in my opinion. Yeah, perfectly and illegally. (laughs) Who needs rights or clearances? 
Now, this was the first time you'd seen a flying guillotine. Is that correct? That is correct. And how would you describe it to the uninitiated? Okay. I would say that it's sort of a canister object that you can open and then twist the side and it opens into this sort of half dome with these crazy teeth blades inside of it. It sounds like the deadliest tube of Pillsbury biscuits ever so it does. far. Pop it open, it goes crazy. And it's on the end of a chain, so you can swing it around and so he can kind of lasso heads off with it. Which he does with aplomb multiple times, both real and fake. I think uh, he gets a chicken too at some point with it. It's pretty awesome. Before we get too far into it, I want you to get your Kung Fu Trope bingo card out and we'll see how long it takes for you to get a complete blackout. Okay. Probably a while, because I don't have a huge history with Kung Fu. Well, what would you say so far you've seen are either stylistic conventions or plot devices that show up repeatedly in Kung Fu films? Yes. I would say the first for me being the whole blind master or the elderly master. Okay, there's one. There's, of course, going to be vengeance of some kind. Ding! That's your free space. Okay. That is the middle That's spot of every Kung everything. Fu bingo card because it's in every single one. You cannot forget to mark off the sweet eyebrow-beard combo. That Definitely. is a must. Anything else so far? When it comes to the weapon of choice, mm -hmm. there's always going to be something really interesting, typically. Right. Did I win the Circus Peanuts? If you want... I tell you what, those I'm gonna, were my favorite I'm in second grade. You deal, you can have all the circus peanuts, and I'll have actual real candy. They're pretty good. You want some BB bats too while you're at it? I don't know what those are. Believe me, if you shopped where they sold circus peanuts, they also sold BB bats. Okay, candy of yore. Anyway, some whorehound perhaps. <laughs> Wait, did you get that at the Oregon Trail Interpretive Center? I when probably we went? did. <laughs> did you die of dysentery afterwards? I did not. Okay. One of the other devices you'll often see, which comes into play immediately right here, and one of my favorites thematically and with the costume and everything else, is evil in the guise of righteousness. He shaves the hair and dons monk's robes to go incognito as he goes in search of the one-armed boxer to exact his vengeance. So cut to the one-armed boxer which is a character that Kung Fu audiences would have been familiar with because a few years prior in 71, Jimmy Wang Yu did a feature film, the original One-Armed Boxer, which this is somewhat of a sequel to. The One-Armed Boxer now runs a school very successfully from the looks of it. There's lots of students, lots of activity. And when we first encounter him, he is leading them through an exercise on the jumping technique where they set up a wicker basket first filled with stones that they have to walk around the rim of, and then again after they remove the stones. And it's all about, as he says, focusing on deep breathing in order to lighten your overall weight. He then proceeds on to show them his flying technique, which is an advanced version of the jumping technique where he walks up the wall and across the ceiling. He's obviously a master, and he's teaching them that through patience and diligence and hard work, you too can achieve these things. These are not outside the realm of any practitioner of the martial arts who is devoted and patient enough. So he's clearly a benevolent teacher. He's our good guy. 
so if he's our good guy, why did you immediately find yourself rooting for the blind assassin? So I went into this heady from this amazing opening where the assassin is going to avenge the death of his two disciples, which to me seems like a righteous mission. So I'm thinking that the whole time, and he's got this incredible start, and he's clearly very, very powerful. And then we meet the one-armed boxer, and even though I had just looked up as we were watching it and knew that the previous film, The One-Armed Boxer, has him as the hero, and then he's in this now, you would think that I would have taken that next logical step and assumed, oh, this is our bad guy. But clearly, I don't know my history enough to be able to really decipher what's going on between these different factions. And the one-armed boxer is pretty boring to me. (laughs) He doesn't have a huge charismatic screen presence, in my opinion, at least. And so... The whole time, I was assuming the blind assassin, the master of the flying guillotine, was going to come out on top. You would think so, from the title especially, and the fact that, yes, Jimmy Wang Yu is not the most magnetic presence, nor is he an especially skilled martial artist. And the scene that you had just mentioned where we meet him in the school, he seems kind of disdainful, actually. It didn't feel like... Of... Of the process itself for the students, he seems pretty cold and removed, which we don't always see the masters being warm-hearted people. But my read for him was he was the person on the run, he's the outlaw, and so he's been hiding in the school. I was interpolating all over the place. Well, you are not far off, because even though he may be the good guy, yes, he is definitely an outlaw. That thing you were saying about not knowing the history very well makes a difference in terms of appreciating these films. The voiceover narration at the very beginning outlines the political struggle between the Ming and the Qing dynasties, and if you know your history, and you are aware of which side each of these characters represents, you, especially as a Chinese audience, or a Taiwanese audience at the time, knew who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. And this outlaw rebel status is relevant right here because the one-armed boxer is invited to a tournament being held by the Eagle Claw School. At first he demurs, because Kung Fu is not about prizes or glory or victory, but his students plead with him to go and he relents, accepting the fact that it could be a learning experience for them even though he is not going to participate. But very importantly, he reminds them that we are Qing sympathizers and we must keep a low profile. So on your Kung Fu bingo card now, You should have also marked off the virtuous school angle, which is one that will frequently turn up. That's an idea that you are familiar with, right? Having only seen a few. Yes. Often schools and then the concept of a tournament. That's pretty common too, right? Oh, definitely. Okay. Whether it be righting wrongs or demonstrations of style. Right. In this case, you don't have the more common angle of rival schools where you have the virtuous school or even a temple full of monks versus the bad guys in the palace, you have the solo virtuous school being assaulted by an individual and his minions more than a rival school. And this individual, our blind monk, is now traveling in search of the one-armed boxer. He stops at an inn where he hears a crude loudmouth who happens to have one arm bragging about having killed seven with one blow not realizing they are flies, 
and that this guy is just a drunken braggart. Out comes the flying guillotine. Zing. Kills that sucker anyway. Off with his head. It is a bad time and place to be a one-armed loudmouth running around, or a one-armed man in general. Which is another thing you can mark off on your card, actually. The preponderance of one-armed men. Yes, in small villages. I didn't realize they had so many threshers or combines ripping arms off in that era in China, but there are a number of them, coincidentally, that he happens to come across. And you also have the best line in the whole movie when he finds out that he killed the wrong one-armed man. I don't care. Doesn't matter. Now, our blind elderly master. Mm -hmm. We see this idea a lot in these sorts of films, right? Yeah. They're not actually elderly. They're played by younger people with old age makeup and hair and beards. Sometimes. Sometimes they're actually played by some of the elder statesmen of the Kung Fu firmament. True. In this one, that's not necessarily the case. So I remember watching these sorts of things as a kid, and that always confused me because I don't expect to see my grandpa show up and start kicking ass. (laughs) Right. But it's quite accepted in these films. And I discovered with a little bit more reading, because it is an actual thing, that rather than the idea that you lose strength as an elderly person, this is about achieving such a higher level of discipline and authority and power and strength that it is not at all odd to see a very old person being the master of these other folks and having such a much higher skill level. Yes, they often will be teachers in most instances in these films, but there is always the point at which their skills come into play and they are superior. And by the way, even though he has said he's going to kill indiscriminately, I'm still rooting for this guy. (laughs) Well, he's on his way to the tournament, which is where we find ourselves also at this point. There are two devices that are the absolute best, the most bang for your buck when it comes to kung fu films. The tournament and the training gauntlet or montage. We don't have the training sequence in this, unfortunately, but we have a kick-ass tournament. It is one of my favorites that I've ever seen. I'm really interested in what you made of how the tournament played out. Before we get there, I did notice at this point that I was actually really enjoying the direction and the camera work with Mm -hmm. this. For me, there were a nice mix of shots and a number of surprises. So it felt like it was so much more interesting than just the, well, let me just train the camera here and see the entire fight. It felt like he really filmed for what was important in the moment. So the actual camera work was as well choreographed as the combat itself. I think so. I I really appreciated this aspect of the film. Now, as for the tournament itself, it is pretty goddamn awesome. We've got all these different styles that I love to see played against each other. And it's really excellent choreography, even to a novice to the genre like me. Did you think so as well, having Um, seen so many more? Yeah, it's great. There's a little bit of wire work in it, but not a ton in the film in general and in a couple of spots in the tournament sequence. I did make a note for myself that when we see the monkey style, Mm -hmm. it seems like that is not wire work. No, it is not. That's just an acrobat. It's amazing. It's amazing to watch. It's really fun. Yeah, it was not uncommon for acrobats from the Peking Opera School to prominently figure in the Shaw Brothers and other films from that time period. 
And I love wire work. It can be really exhilarating to watch. Mm. And on the flip side, it's really fun to see just the natural ability. Was there anything about the tournament that stood out to you? Styles in particular or outcomes that you found surprising? Definitely. I've got a few of them. Okay. Starting with the Japanese fighter flying over the tenting to arrive in the tournament. Pretty great start. And there is cheating. There is a killer braid. Significantly cheating from the Japanese entry into the tournament. Which has a political implication. And we'll get into more of that in a little bit. I love the iron skin fighter. That was pretty neat. Ding. Check another one off of your bingo card. Oh, I didn't even know. Yeah. That whole indestructible characteristic. That is one. Along with the fact that the indestructible guy always loses. (laughs) Always. If you are billed as the indestructible one, you can guarantee that somehow you have another mark on your card, which is the single weak point. Yes. I mentioned the monkey fighter earlier, and he backflips until his pants fall off. That's always going to be a high point. (laughs) There was the yogi who's able to extend his arms. And then we've got the TIE fighter who brings his own jam to the party (laughs) to get ready for. Uh, He did pick his nose, which is the grossest thing ever, in addition to eating on camera. We should just get into the whole xenophobic part of how this tournament plays out right here. You've got the obvious biggest rift between the Chinese and the Japanese. Sino-Japanese relations were not great ever, maybe. The Japanese fighter in this case wins without a knife, is his name, wins because he has knives. His whole thing is about deceit. And this is not just something that happens in this era. This portrayal of the Japanese and Chinese films extends all the way up into contemporary films. You'll see it in Ip Man, on and on and on. This issue will likely never be solved. Then you've got the TIE fighter, who is obviously very crude and boorish with his coughing and spitting and picking his nose. And the Indian fighter, the yogi, who is thrown in with these bad guys. Obviously, all the non-Chinese participants are somehow undesirable. Now, not having seen a ton of these, was that obvious to you at first blush, or did it just occur to you later after thinking about it? Did it stick out like a sore thumb? Yes and no. Okay. The yes part are those superficial things. For example, the brown face makeup. Okay. And the mannerisms. And the obvious cheating that's happening. Looking up more about it later, it becomes, as you mentioned, a fuller reading of the film. So we have one final battle at the tournament, which is won, coincidentally, by the one-armed snake fist fighter. Good news, bad news for him. (laughs) He wins his battle. But because he's one-armed... Right. The master happens to show up. So he kills him. Surprise to no one. Well... No surprise to the viewer. Surprise to everyone in attendance at the tournament. That's true. It says again, nobody is going to stop me. Not even a has-been like you, (laughs) referring to the president of the tournament. He then kills the president, pretty exciting, and starts throwing bombs like crazy. I need to get some of those in case I ever need to make a hasty exit. (laughs) And and murder everyone. After I've cut a few heads off. (laughs) Never know when those are going to come in handy. It's true. And by the way, I am still rooting for the master at this point. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. 
That tournament was pretty great, though. Yeah, it was fantastic. It's a long section, and it's really fun. Yeah, the tournament is frequently the most bang for your buck in these films. You get to see such a multitude of styles. Now I have a, a bit of an aside here. Okay. We then transition back to the school, the one-armed boxer school. And he says that the school is going to close because of all of this senseless killing that's taking place. Now he says... Or he frames it to the students as, this master of the flying guillotine, he is out to kill all kung fu experts. Not him, which, again, because I'm still rooting for the master at this point, I took it as a little bit of a cowardly dodge on his part. Cowardly dodge or convenient for Jimmy Wang Yu, who is not necessarily the greatest martial artist? Both. (laughs) He's a very pragmatic fighter. I like that, because the entire final act now is about him laying traps, which will give him an advantage. He does have one arm. Yeah, but the other guy's blind, which I <laughs> constantly am forgetting in Ding. the course of this. Check your card again right there. Okay. Disabilities abound, and somehow the two most prominent martial artists in the region happen to be a blind guy and a one-armed guy. So this entire final act is a series of the one-armed boxer luring the master's minions into a trap to dispatch them one at a time, and then a final showdown in a coffin shop with the master himself. Is there anything in this last section that particularly stands out to you? There's that little side tangent where we have the Japanese fighter and the daughter of the president. And the Japanese fighter's bargain, basically, is... Give me the girl. I'll take her to Japan where she'll be safe. And then you and your students can get out of here. Again, that element of, what is his plan for this girl? It can't be great. No, considering the history of the two countries and the character's treacherous nature, I think there is a very definite implication of rape in that exchange that they don't go into necessarily. But I feel like it's a definite underlying threat. We next have a line that I really love when the yogi shows up with his owl. And he talks about how killing a coward is easier than insulting him. I really like that. (laughs) These final individual fight sequences are really fun and interesting, I think, because in each case, the one-armed boxer hoists the other character on their own petard, essentially, turning their unique ability into a liability. In this case, with the yogi with the super extendo arms... He lashes the super extendo arms to a post and kicks them in half, basically. I think we both did sort of grunt yell (laughs) at that moment. So you've got one bad guy down, three to go. And this is where the one-armed boxer is hatching this plan of how he can ultimately defeat the master. And he realizes that it's all about the thickness of the blade. And he's using bamboo as this sort of foil, which I can personally attest to because we have bamboo in the backyard. I've tried to chop that stuff up and it is a pain in the ass. Have you seen the sequel? The Return of the Master of the Flying Guillotine versus Kudzu? (laughs) Versus me with that huge rototiller thing? Ultimately, it's all about he realizes the blade can't stop moving once it's in motion. So he's got the Achilles heel of the guillotine. Right. Of the weapon, not the man. Because once again, still on the master's side. I'm going to guess that you're still on his side all the way up to the final credits. All the way until now. Still. Past the end of the movie. Yeah, it's written in caps on the last page of my notes. 
Now, is this the moment where we get into the final showdown with the TIE Fighter? Yes, he is the next one to be dispatched. And I think probably in the most cruel way It's of the most mean-spirited, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. He's lured into a hut with a metal floor under which they have built a raging fire since he fights barefooted. And they've got fire along the perimeter and spears, so there's no way out for him. No, he has to stay in there and either fight or cook, which is what he eventually does. So the one-armed boxer is punching him to death while he is literally being roasted alive. One thing I did look up separately, and tell me if this is also one of these tropes, he gets the fist to the heart, mm -hmm. and I think that that's all about using these acupressure points to furious advantage. Yes, those elements of Eastern medicine often figure prominently in Kung Fu mythology. It makes for something really visually exciting. Along with being mysterious and possibly hard to grasp for a Westerner, which gave it an air of exoticism as well. Next, we have the final battle with the Japanese character, Wins Without a Knife, who is the penultimate bad guy, who is ironically dispatched by his own knives. So, you reap what you sow. Cheating Japanese. Still trying to take the girl mm. all the way up until the end. Which leads us to the final showdown in the coffin shop. The one-armed boxer finally lures the master of the flying guillotine into a coffin shop that he has prepared with a number of spring-loaded axes after a visit to the blacksmith. Now, I have to say, I know I've said it a million times, it starts to feel like he's just setting up a blind guy to get killed at this point. I'm really, I guess, on team master of the flying guillotine. Well, yeah. He's so cool. He is. And... During this fight sequence, he manages to shrug off two axe blows directly to his chest. One looks like it's the collarbone and then the sternum. I mean, it's pretty serious. To finally do him in, he receives a third axe to the chest, which then gets knocked directly through him. Yeah. He kicks him through the roof and kicks a coffin out into the street to catch his body. That was pretty damn cool, though. <laughs> The end. Here were my final in caps notes. I think it's more fun when the master is the hero. I guess that all depends on if you're Ming Dynasty or Qing Dynasty. Yeah. This is another one of those tropes, by the way, at the end. Villain dies, the end. Yeah, nothing else. There's we don't no know lingering. How anything happens for anybody else. Don't no need wrap it. up. Final boss battle. Roll credits. You don't have to convince me to watch more Kung Fu. I've always enjoyed it, even though I haven't seen much. But mentioning these specific ideas makes me want to go find way more options. Well, there are about 200 of them in this room. Yes. We did go to the Kung Fu Marathon, right? At Austin Film Society? Yes. Frequently at AFS, they will program old school Kung Fu weekends. And Dan Halstead, who was doing the Lord's work scouring the globe for prints to save and restore. He'll bring a selection from his own collection, and for two straight days, they will show nothing but old-school kung fu all night, and it is one of the best times of the year. I got to see the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. On the big screen for the first time you ever saw it. Yes. Which is indescribably awesome. <laughs> However, full disclosure, there's always got to be one in these episodes. I think I fell asleep around maybe the 11th or 12th chamber because <laughs> you can't have something that includes the words 
weekend or marathon or after dark or late night and expect me to be able to stay awake. No, 8.30 is your bedtime. It is, it is. So I've got to go back and watch that. But the beginning that I saw was amazing. Yeah, you do. (laughs) Yes, that and a billion other choices. So then with so many great Kung Fu films, why did you choose this one as your first Kung Fu entry for the podcast? Because it's incredible. Did you did you just watch hey, it? Hey, I'm not doubting it. <laughs> I'm going to say this again just to drive the point home. The ending, he gets the third axe kicked through his body, which then gets kicked through the roof, which is then caught by a coffin that's kicked into the street. It's true. That's all true. But having said that, it's not as though these other kung fu films are slouches in the exciting no, fighting department. True. To me, this one stands out for how bananas it is and how jam-packed full of styles and entertaining fights and the whole notion that it was made in Taiwan is interesting to me because that exposes this thing that I frequently talk about with genre pictures of all sorts. None of this stuff is ever made in a vacuum. When you're turning out so many of these, and they turned out tons of them, In particular, Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest are the two names you're going to see the most in terms of production companies. But there are other smaller ones as well. They turned out hundreds and hundreds of these in a very short time. For instance, Doris Lung, who plays Wu's daughter, the Eagle Claw School, in 1977, the year after this, she was in 14 films. Amazing. When you think of filmmaking in the States, for example... I can't think of an analog in genre pictures or in A pictures, especially. As a comparison, Jamie Lee Curtis, when she made Halloween, that stretch between Halloween and Halloween 2, she was in 12 movies. And they were pretty big for the genre. We're talking about The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train, in addition to a couple of TV movies and other things. But in that same span of time, she only made a dozen pictures, whereas in one year, Doris Lung made 14, and was like that every year for several years. It would be as if Jamie Lee Curtis, in that stretch between Halloween and Halloween 2, made 50 movies instead of 12. So they were incredibly prolific. And these actors were not just character actors or bit players. These were fan favorites and stars of the genre. So they made a ton of them. And when you're turning out these movies so fast, you're also unconsciously responding to cultural conditions at the time, I think. You see it in all sorts of examples. The Universal Monster movies of the 30s. You see a lot of monsters we don't understand coming from Europe, and in particular, vaguely German villages. Recently, you have that whole spate of movies like Hostel and Touristas, which I think directly reflected our anxiety about how Americans were perceived abroad during the tail end of the Bush administration. When you make these movies so fast, all of these things bubble up to the surface, whether you mean them to or not. In the case of these films in particular, you'll see a lot of themes occur again and again. You see rebellion against cruel oppressors. You'll see righteousness or evil in the guise of righteousness. You'll see corrupt governments constantly, and it is no accident. And this film was made in Taiwan, which is seen basically as where Chinese democracy went when it left the mainland. 
when the mainland moved to communism. So you can view these films on a purely superficial level, which is easy because they're great fun, but if you know much about Chinese history, either ancient or recent or both, it reveals a whole lot more is going on than you might imagine. Does that mean then that it's okay for me to still root for the master knowing what I know now? <laughs> if you're comfortable with that, if you have your Maoist little red book that you want to shake at me, then you feel free to do that. Mm. I'm just saying, yes, the movies are great on their own, but frequently there is more to them than people often give them credit for. This one in particular, coming from Taiwan, has an extra layer of that buried meaning, perhaps. So in addition to how badass it is, it also has a lot of fun layers of political subtext. Well, I think you picked a great one to start out with. Now, how about then a recommendation? I'm going to stick with Kung Fu in this case, because everyone should watch more of it. My recommendation this time is The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter from 1983, directed by Lau Kar Lung and starring Gordon Liu, who is a legend in the kung fu business. 36th Chamber of Shaolin, like you mentioned. He's a superstar. Yes. After betrayal and ambush, a family is all but wiped out, and one surviving son seeks refuge in a Buddhist monastery, which he is not initially cut out for. But he finally succeeds at his assimilation into Buddhism, but his sister is then put in danger by the people that killed his father and brothers in the opening, and he must break his Buddhist vows to exact revenge. Again, there's your revenge angle. I chose this one because it's not seen as often as it should be. It should be considered up there with all of the kung fu movies that everyone knows. 36 Chamber of Shaolin, all the Bruce Lee films that a lot of American audiences are familiar with, this is in that top, top tier of kung fu films. In addition to that, it also has, unlike this film, a really fantastic training gauntlet. And similar to this film, a coffin-based finale, which will blow your mind. And we mentioned Gordon Liu. I can't think of another person who is more charismatic. Super iconic guy. So fun to watch. What about you? What's your recommendation? I have to say, for this one... I kind of took the path of least resistance. I mentioned that the list of kung fu or martial arts films that I've seen is not a long one. However, I think I chose an exemplary one. Okay. My other angle in choosing this was, was the theme that I had mentioned earlier about the elderly master. So I chose 13 Assassins. Ooh, you went with those treacherous Japanese. Yes, I did. In this instance, we're talking samurai culture. Okay. It's about a group of assassins, the 13 assassins mentioned, who come together for a suicide mission to kill an evil lord. Can you think of, in recent memory, a target that is more deserving of an assassination than this evil lord? No, I cannot. He's truly inhumane on all levels. Now, going back to that theme before, it's great to see these elder statesmen, the actors acting their age, and they make up the assassination group. And they're in top form here. 13 Assassins is from 2010, directed by Takashi Miike. For me, the other film that I had seen before was Audition, mm. which, again, for me, is an imperfect film. I know I'm in the minority on this one, 
but 13 Assassins is a perfect film. It's on the longer side, and it feels like it's 15 minutes. I could watch it right now. When it first was announced that he was making that, I was really skeptical, I think, because I am used to, and the things that I love about his catalog are the much more outrageous button-pushing things, the provocative things like Visitor Q. And I thought, can he play it straight enough to do a legitimate samurai film? And he knocked it out of the park in terms of period detail, in terms of keeping that exciting while sticking to, for him especially, a bit of a traditional narrative structure. It was super exciting, and yeah, the runtime presents no problem at all. It goes like stink, as I'm fond of saying. (laughs) So we've got two fun recommendations, places to go next. And that's the Eight Diagram Pole Fighter and 13 Assassins. And that brings us to the end of episode 39. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Magic Lantern Podcast at either one of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who either gave us feedback or shared the show since last time. I know it's a quick turnaround this time, since Meet John Doe went up a little bit late and we are getting back on schedule with this episode. But in the interim, Aaron West and Mark Herney invited us on their show Criterion Now, which is a great new podcast they're doing that deals with what is happening in the world of Criterion new releases, and we had a really fun discussion about that and the new Filmstruck streaming service. And in particular, it was a lot of fun to get to talk to our friend Matt Gasteyer. That conversation was a great time, so thanks to those guys for having us on. In addition to that, thanks to Mike Scharf, Jeff Duncanson for a lot of great feedback about Meet John Doe, Scott Morris and Craig Eastman over at the fantastic podcast Fuds on Film, Grindhouse Dave, as always, and Tim Lego. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play, or basically any podcatcher that you use. You can find us there. If you would like to leave us a rating and or review on any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>